Hi, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And I'm excited this month for our podcast to introduce Dr. Mark Pimentel, who is the executive director of the MASS program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and an author on the new guidelines on irritable bowel syndrome from the American College of Gastroenterology. So Mark, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Brennan, good to see you and it's a pleasure. It'll be fun. We have a lot to get through in a 20 or 25 minute podcast, and we won't be able to get through it all. So the first thing I want to tell our listeners is this is a must read document for anyone that is a clinical gastroenterologist. You all see IBS all the time. Even if you're an interventional endoscopist, you see IBS. Uh, Even if you're a hepatologist, you see IBS. We all see IBS. And so this document that we're going to talk about today is the latest and greatest guideline from the ACG on the management of IBS. And it is just full of pearls of wisdom and the latest data. And we'll touch on it today, but certainly won't get through the entire document. So I really recommend our listeners to take some time and read through this document. So thank you and to everyone on the committee for the hard work of putting this together. Now, there are 25 recommendations in this document. And, um, but before we get into some of them, I just wanna point out that many of us think of IBS as a functional GI disorder or an FGID, but everyone may not know that we've moved on to a new term a disorder of gut-brain interaction, or a DGBI. So maybe you could just very briefly uh, level set uh, so that we're all on the same page. Why is it not an FGID anymore? And and what is a DGBI? And what's the difference? Well, I think over the last couple of decades, it's become very clear that there's a lot of derogatory terminology. I don't want to call it derogatory, but basically the terminology of functional GI disorders has evolved. I would like to see in the future, and maybe I'm uh, going beyond your question, the term irritable bowel and syndrome, some patients don't even like that because who wants to be called irritable and a syndrome, which means we don't know what's going on and you're not a real disease. So I think the terminology, to be frank, is evolving over time. And I think we're understanding that the communication between the gut and the brain, and maybe that's the direction with which the communication is aberrant that's causing some of the pain dysfunction that is part and parcel of irritable bowel syndrome. And so moving away from the fact that functional is too nebulous a term, to be honest, and I think the new terminology is a little more closely approximating the pathophysiology that as we continue to un- understand it. Yeah, so it's maybe a more mechanistic, more uh, maybe more scientific kind of designation. So I'd encourage our listeners to start getting used to saying a DGBI, because we've been programmed for many years to call it a functional GI disorder, FGID. So I, for one, I'm still struggling with that. I often still call it an FGID, but just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page on, on that. The first part of this document talks all about diagnostic testing and making the diagnosis of IBS. And the second part is really about the management, all the different treatment options. So I wanted to touch on some of the diagnostic issues that you address in this guideline. And one of the very first recommendations, if not the first one, as I recall, is around testing for celiac disease. So this has come up over the years and we know that celiac is very common, IBS is very common, and they have overlapping symptoms. So what does the latest guidance say about testing for celiac disease and IBS? 
So there's a number of facets with celiac disease. As you very clearly outlined, it's a common disorder. Obviously, IBS is the most common, but uh, celiac is also common. And, and so the questions have always been, should we test for celiac disease? Will we yield a good or provide a good yield for celiac positive testing? And then the question between doing antibody testing and or the gold standard, which is biopsy. And I always, to be honest, Brendan, I always reflect back on a paper you published. I can't even remember what year it was, but it was in the last decade where you clearly state that in a cost analysis, if you're over 1% of the IBS population, it's cost effective to test everyone. And we've continued to reference that as sort of the standard of where we think the cutoff should be. And biopsies suggest that it could be up to 3% that are positive. It depends on which study you reference. Some are less than one, but we're heading in, a, in the 1% to 3% range. So because of that, we think it's at least cost-effective. And of course, if you do find celiac disease, treating it in the proper way will get a better outcome for the patient. So I think based on that evidence that has continued to accumulate, it is both beneficial to the patient and cost-effective. By the way, I hate to tell you that uh, you mentioned it was in the last decade. Believe it or not, that was 17 years ago that that paper came out. So yeah, it's been a long time and I'm glad that it still made it into the guidelines 17 years later. It does appear to be health economically feasible to test. Is it mainly an IBS-D or what about IBS-C? Do you think about celiac and C patients or just in D? I think D and mixed would be the place you think about it. Obviously, you know, there are rate, people say between 10 and 20% of celiac do have constipation, but Studying that is a little more challenging. I think predominantly we should focus on D and or mixed IBS for testing for celiac. So I think that's pretty clear. Now, another area that's sort of newer here in this guideline is the role of fecal calpro, calprotectin, and fecal uh, lactoferrin in excluding IBD or at least trying to distinguish IBS from IBD. Now, in the past guidelines, we've talked about the role of ESR and CRP, but now there seems to be more of a focus on fecal calpro. What do the latest guidelines say about these stool tests? I think the ESR and CRP are, are not out of the question. I think they, they do offer value. They suggest there's inflammation, but an ESR and CRP could be elevated if you have the flu or if you have an infection of some kind. If you have a UTI, it's possible that those could be elevated. So while they can indicate an inflammatory state, they're not specific to the intestinal tract. So I think the notion of using fecal calprotectin, which is specific to the digestive tract, meaning it's a fecal sample, brings it to the gastrointestinal tract. And then if it's elevated, it's suggesting inflammatory bowel disease. I'm guessing you're going to get to the next question, which is diagnosis of exclusion, which we spent a lot of time on in this document. But the fecal calprotectin, while it's very useful at saying, okay, maybe you're the person we should scope, maybe you have inflammatory bowel disease, it's still not offering the patient a comfortable diagnosis that they have IBS. It simply says you don't have IBD if it's negative. And so it doesn't get us across the finish line, but it is a useful test to exclude IBD. There's always been this tension about IBS as a diagnosis of exclusion or not. Here we are on the one hand saying, well, we think it's reasonable to exclude IBD, but IBS isn't really a diagnosis of exclusion. How do we reconcile that and what do the guidelines say? Because as you point out, there are quite a bit in this guideline on this issue of diagnosis of exclusion. By the way, I want to thank my co-authors on this because while I'm maybe the spokesperson on this particular podcast, this was a heroic effort by a group of people that are listed as authors on this. But we got together and we really felt that it was important to flush out the nature of IBS because all of us see a tremendous number of these patients. 
These patients do not like the notion of a diagnosis of exclusion. These patients don't like to be coming into our office with a ream of paper that says all negative tests, stool tests are negative, colonoscopies are negative. I often recall the patient that came to my office, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, she's 25 and she's had three negative colonoscopies. So why did you need a second or a third colonoscopy if the first was negative? And the money she paid of $20,000 out of pocket for the co-pays, these patients suffer and struggle with the notion that IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. Now, this stems way back from the beginning of maybe the first Rome criteria. Of course, we don't think that way now, but that IBS, if you exclude all other diseases and you apply the Rome criteria, then you have IBS. But that notion of diagnosis of exclusion needs to be put away. And again, I'm going to quote another paper of yours because it's also mentioned there. And, and it's important, but it's the last paper I'll quote of yours, so I don't sound like I'm feeding you all this uh, good vibes. But what you found is that 80% of the costs in IBS are among doctors who use this IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion approach. And while that's cost, the cost has morbidity because the patients are undergoing colonoscopy, taking time off work, doing CT scans, whatever the, the doctor's notion is of investigation. So I think if we hammered something home in this document is that stop doing this diagnosis of exclusion approach because I think it's, it's unwarranted and not necessary in 2020. It's such an important point to make and can't underscore it enough. I also pointed out, of course, that there are other authors with you. So I just want to highlight that the, uh, my co-editor-in-chief, Brian Lacey, is the first author of this guideline. And in addition to Mark, uh, Darren Brenner and Bill Che, Laura Kiefer, Millie Long, and Baha Moshiri are all on this guideline. So we, we thank all of them for their contributions to this important document. Well, let's keep moving. So a few other things here talked about colonoscopy just now and this example of repeating it over and over again. But what is the role for the first colonoscopies? One topic that comes up a lot is, well, you know, microscopic colitis could mimic IBS in some cases. Isn't it worth ruling out microscopic colitis? What's the role of colonoscopy, mainly in people under the age of 45 or 50, because they should be getting screening colonoscopies anyway for colon cancer screening, so what did, how did you guys come down on this topic of the appropriateness of colonoscopy, particularly in younger people? Part of the reason we even have discussions about colonoscopy is because the Rome criteria are very good only because if you take 100 consecutive people coming to our offices as gastroenterologists with diarrhea, you could bet in Vegas and win every day that the next patient's going to be IBS, even if you don't see them, because IBS is so common. So by being so common and Crohn's being so rare, you don't even need a diagnostic test almost. You would guess and get it right most of the time, even though that's not medicine. But the colonoscopy rules out IBD, and that's the worry doctors have. The second thing is in primary care, for example, and this has been studied, if a primary care doctor has a patient come to their office, let's say a 25-year-old woman comes in with constipation, they don't care. They give them a little laxative and it's done. It's the diarrhea that makes people stressed as clinicians. And so they want to make sure they didn't miss Crohn's, didn't miss celiac disease. But if you take two people with diarrhea, or you take 100 people with diarrhea who have Crohn's and 100 people with diarrhea who have IBS, equal numbers, the Rome criteria break down because almost 80% of the Crohn's patients might meet the Rome criteria depending upon which study you read. So here we are with, with the colonoscopy question. In microscopic colitis, if you have a woman in her 60s who suddenly has diarrhea, this could be microscopic colitis in that age group. But what we clearly know is that anybody under 45 doing a colonoscopy 
colonoscopy because they've had five years of diarrhea doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think one of the most interesting things that I pointed out, and there's two papers, one from Scandinavia and one Bill Che was involved in that are quoted here, there are less polyps in IBS patients than in control patients in those both populations, even controlling for age and other factors. So not only is it not a good idea to do a colonoscopy, your yield even for polyps and regular stuff is less for reasons that should be explored that could be very, very interesting. But it's just, there's no purpose to colonoscopy. That last point is fascinating. And like you say, that deserves further evaluation. It might teach us something about the pathophysiology of IBS. So that's incredible. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to treatment. There are certainly more diagnostic issues. For I just One thing I'll point out is you guys do emphasize probably not a great idea to spend a lot of time testing for food allergies, for example, I know that, and there's a section on that. But while we're on the topic of food, why don't we start with diet therapy before we get into pharmacotherapy? And in particular, there's been increasing interest in the low FODMAP diet. We've all heard about it now. But since the last guidelines were written, there's been more published on this. So what, what did the committee say about the role of low FODMAP diet and should it be recommended? Well, I think as we, we head into this therapeutic section, I think it's sort of hidden in the introduction, but the way we approach therapeutics for this uh, guideline is the FDA says they don't want to see pain better. They don't want to see diarrhea better. They want to see the multi-composition of IBS better. So more of a, quote, global approach to IBS. So when we evaluated each and every one of these therapeutic agents, we took that approach. If we didn't have evidence that it was global improvement, it wasn't going to meet the muster in terms of the FDA and our own view. So that's so. For example, Imodium will get rid of diarrhea, won't make pain better, won't make bloating better. So that's the kind of sort of example of that. The low FODMAP diet. I think the the challenge we had with low FODMAP was a lot of the studies had high risk of bias. A lot of the studies, for example, the first study where they compared the typical Australian diet to the low FODMAP diet. These patients were not on a typical Australian diet, and when they were put on it they got worse on the typical Australian diet, which increased the delta. So part of the diet intervention actually caused the delta, which caused the p-value. And there's just things like that. But, but more importantly, there's some concerns about long-term use of a low FODMAP diet in terms of nutritional deficiencies. And Bill Che actually published some of this, that there's concerns about changes in the microbiome, reduced diversity, and also micronutrient deficiencies. So all of that weighed into our sort of equation of, so, okay, so maybe the low FODMAP diet has some benefits, then what? I mean, what's the end game? What's the long-term plan? And that sort of tempered our enthusiasm. Okay. So it's not that you're saying we shouldn't use it or recommend it, but understand the limitations in the evidence. It may not be the most effective therapy out there. For some people, maybe it works, but for others, it probably doesn't work all that great. Uh, and understand that there are other consequences of low FODMAP diet, like nutrition, micronutrient deficiencies, and so on. Now, another dietary intervention that you know we all learned about in med school is fiber. Um, and I think a lot of primary care docs still consider fiber to be the very first-line therapy for IBS. What's the latest thoughts about the role of fiber, soluble versus insoluble? How much? Uh, tell us about fiber. Well, I think the consensus among the group, and you know, I'm a, I'm a non-fiber kind of person when I treat my patients, but, but I think the evidence as we reviewed it suggested soluble fiber may have a role and seems to have some benefits, particularly on the constipation side and some global improvement. So I think our verdict uh, based on uh, further review of the evidence is soluble fiber does have a role and may have a benefit. And 
first of all, it certainly has a cost benefit because it's relatively inexpensive and easy to, to try and apply. And if it doesn't work, you move on. So uh, cost was not an important factor in the way we looked at things, but I, I'm just adding that as another caveat to, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. Typically around 20 to 30 grams per day, I think, if you're going to use fiber. Now, this was kind of a little surprising to me when I read this latest guideline that you do not recommend antispasmodics. And that struck me because, God, everyone uses, well, not everyone, but in primary care and a lot of our colleagues use antispasmodics to manage IBS, particularly if there's cramping, urgency. But in this guideline, the thought was, well, the evidence is pretty old and not very rigorous, and maybe we need more data before we can stand behind it. Is that an appropriate summary? What are the thoughts about antispasmodics? So there's a couple of things with antispasmodics. First of all, the data on the antispasmodics available in North America are they don't work, Um, not for global IBS. And that's clear. There are antispasmodics available in, for example, Europe, where the data are more substantive. And we do say that we took the tactic of this being a North America sort of evaluation because some of these drugs are not available here. In North America, the drugs en masse don't appear to be effective. There's another thing that frustrated us. It came up in conversation, but we have to weigh the evidence of the data. And I've just expressed that. It behooves us as as a committee to say, look, the evidence is not there. But why would insurance companies say you have to take an antispasmodic first, and then you have to go to something else, and then you have to get to the treatment you actually, as a doctor, think is evidence-based effective? And we wanted to make a statement that in North America, the evidence doesn't stack up. You know, maybe insurance companies won't listen to the guideline, but it's a stamp that the data is not there. Please don't make patients go through a maze to get to the therapy that they actually need and deserve. Right. Well, great point. Now, peppermint is some considered antispasmodic, I guess, not a traditional one, but the guidance is a little different for peppermint oil. What did you guys say on that peppermint? The evidence appears to be low quality. There's a, there's a number of studies, and of course, as with a lot of these natural type of preparations, there are a number of preparations, and we didn't give it a good guidance because the largest study that was done suggested that there may not be a global improvement. But here's something we presented at DDW, a little work that we did where we took each peppermint paper that's ever been published and we used the N and the P-value. So the larger the trial, the worse the P-value looked. The bigger the trial you did with peppermint, the P-value was getting worse and worse and becoming non-significant. And that's a problem. That indicates that small trials are weighing in on peppermint. And, and that did come up in our conversation, some of those kinds of discussion points. But the largest trial wasn't so successful. And I think peppermint is pretty cheap. It's inexpensive. Maybe it's safe. But I don't think the evidence stacks up for peppermint yet. Okay. Now, another area where the evidence isn't stacking up is probiotics. And you guys made a recommendation there to generally not support probiotics for IBS. Uh, Tell us briefly about that. This is where meta-analyses can sometimes, you can trip on them because the meta-analyses for probiotics show that if you take every probiotic on the shelf, every study that's been done, there's a signal of benefit. But why are we stacking lactobacillus with bifidobacteria, with E. coli nissel, they're totally different. I mean, it's sort of like saying we're doing a meta-analysis of a whole bunch of different drugs together. They're, they just have different effects. So uh, if you just looked at lactobacillus, the meta-analysis doesn't work. If you just looked at bifido, the meta-analysis doesn't work. 
think the data break down. And if you look at the PLASIDE study, which is the largest probiotic study ever done, 3,000 patients or so in multi-countries, the only benefit people got on, on the bifidobacter preparation in people who took antibiotics, so this wasn't for IBS, but the only benefit they got from probiotics was more bloating from probiotics. The meta-analyses are not convincing. Safety studies suggest more bloating on probiotics, so I'm not sure that we have convincing evidence with a uniform probiotic to suggest one probiotic, and that's what we need. So that'll probably be the subject of a whole other podcast at some point, but I think the pendulum has been swinging back, I think, on this one. There's a lot of excitement 10 years ago, but it's just not panning out, at least at this point. There's a lack of good studies and a lack of consistent findings, so I think in this case, there's a lot of studies and it just doesn't stack up. Yeah, okay. We'll get to the, the treatments you were excited about, but we're kind of going through the ones you guys were less excited about with Miralax, or I should say polyethylene glycol. Of course, PEG preparations are very commonly used, but you weren't real excited about PEG for IBS either. It's because we're focusing on global. So it does improve constipation, that's clear, but it can produce bloating and bloating can lead to more cramping and other symptoms. PEG is fairly inexpensive, super easy, and, and we do state this in the guidelines. You can use it for your patients. We're not saying you don't use it. We're saying that just the caveat is our goal was to see, does it stack up as a global improvement? Remember, in, in a lot of the studies and a lot of things that we compared here, it's really unfair, even with NNTs and other things, to compare tricyclic antidepressants, which never used FDA endpoints, to Elocitron, which used very rigorous FDA endpoints and, and you know, hundreds and thousands of patients, I mean, you're comparing two different outcome measures and trying to compare different products. And I think what we're trying to do is level the playing field a little bit. And it doesn't work for global, but it does work for constipation. And I think that's fairly well stated in the descriptions of that Miralax section. All right. Now, for this last part, we're going to do a little speed round to keep us on pace. So there's still so many more treatments that are discussed in the guidelines. What I thought I'd do here is name a treatment or a treatment category, and you can give us the most important uh, insights that pop into your head anyway from the guideline, because each one of these we can talk about for quite some time, not the least of which is, of course, Rifaximin, which is uh, where you've done a lot of your work. If I say uh, psychotherapy for IBS, good, bad, ugly, where do you guys pan out on that? I, I think uh, we put it as very low quality of evidence. I think there's a lot of uh, heterogeneity between trials. One of the problems we've had with, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy is you say cognitive behavioral therapy, but how am I going to apply it to my practice when I don't know exactly what you're doing? Now, there's online cognitive behavioral therapies and more app-based approaches now that aren't evaluated here that uh, more recently have been published that may be of benefit. And so in the next guideline, we'll see and regrade. Uh, how about tricyclics? Yeah, again, tricyclics, the problem is it's a heterogeneous group of drugs. We gave it a good grade because the accumulated evidence is fairly good. I think the question that always comes up is it never really followed FDA guidance on outcome measures. So I would love to see a 1,000 patient tricyclic trial with an FDA endpoint, but these drugs are off-label. Maybe that'll never happen. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't think about them. It's just haven't gone through the rigors of other drugs. How about libiprostone? That was a good one. I mean, uh, the data is pretty substantive, big double blind studies following FDA guidance, relatively safe, uh, and we gave it a good grade. Okay. Uh, then we have guanolate cyclase C agonists, uh, linaclotide, placanotide. Don't mean to get into the distinctions between them, but as a class, what are your thoughts on those? 
Yeah, I think they they followed rigorous outcome measures and they have a high quality of evidence. So in multiple drugs in the same category, both getting beneficial effects. In other words, there's two ways to grade evidence. You've done multiple trials with one drug or you've done multiple trials with two drugs of the same category. And that just adds weight to your critique and continues to be consistently effective. Another update since the last guideline is this uh, blast from the past, I'll call it. And uh, you probably know where I'm headed with this, and that's Tegacerod, which was on the market, then off the market, and now it's suddenly made this resurrection. So it's now available again. What say ye about Tegacerod? When it was out the first time, I was a big fan, fan in the sense that the data were very good. Clinical responses of patients were quite good. I think the concern about cardiovascular cerebrovascular events may have been overstated and so the drug was relitigated everything was looked at again with post marketing analysis and data from Europe and brought back to market but the challenge here is that the companies that sort of put this back on the market and the FDA has limited it to women under the age of 65 and they can't have additional cardiovascular comorbidities lot check boxes that are unclear from the label and i think that creates confusion and sort of tempered our enthusiasm but overall i think it's a good drug mm-hmm. Of course, rifaximin? Uh, rifaximin, uh, all three clinical trials were effective, target one, two, and three, and the data continued to pan out. There are no negative rifaximin trials, which is a good thing. So that suggests that there's a lot of internal consistency in the response to rifaximin, and so it gets a positive recommendation. Now, almost done here for our listeners and for you as well, you through the speed round, but there's just so much to cover. But another area that, again, we can spend an hour on so instead we'll spend 30 seconds on, is bile acid sequestrants for uh, bile acid malabsorption. We've heard a lot of talk about this. Should we be using bile acid sequestrants? And so bile acids, it's interesting because when you start to really look at all the bile acid data, and clinically, there's not a lot of data. It's mostly open label trials. So you can't get a grade for open label trials. We need some large scale randomized control trials. And maybe those are coming, but yes, we agree that using tests for bile acids in stool and and even breath tests, which are only available in Europe for bile acid malabsorption, there is a subset of IBS that might be have bile acid malabsorption. The mechanisms of that are very unclear. It could be microbial or bacterial, and some of the recent data suggests that could happen as well. But in terms of therapy, the data is still very early stages, so we couldn't give it a recommendation because of that. So it's up to the clinician's discretion, like all of this, but there's very little evidence at this point for at least routine use of this. So there's other stuff we could talk about, you know, losatroni, loxadiline, loperamide, fecal transplant, uh, which again, you guys aren't, not enough data there as well uh, on that. There's certainly data with losatroni, loxadiline, loperamide alone, maybe not so great. So I think I'm going to let you off the hook there because we've covered so much. And as I said at the top of the of the podcast, you know, we've done a blitz through a very long and detailed guideline. And I really do strongly recommend our listeners to go and take a look at the details. If you don't want to read every line of it, then I recommend you read the summary paragraph at the end of each section. That alone is very high yield and definitely worth your time. So Uh, Mark, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Really appreciate all of your insights and expertise. Thanks, Brennan. I appreciate it. And again, thanks to all of the other authors on this guideline. And on behalf of my co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Brian Lacey, and our associate editorial board at the American Journal of Gastroenterology, signing off. This is Brennan Spiegel, and we'll see you next time on the podcast.